Uh, we are in Matthew 16 this morning, verses 13 to 28. Uh, recently, recently uh, we Dudleys were invited to go to Sergio Chavez's house for dinner, and we've been saying because after like maybe five to seven years of hey, we should have you guys for dinner, it finally happened, right? So, um, and that's not a knock at Sergio. It's just that finally the wives texted each other and got a date on the counter. So, anyways, we went to Sergio's house for dinner, and he told us he's the communications guy in our church. And I'll show you a picture of him in a minute. But he told us a funny story about um, if you know Pastor John Kim at our church, who's in missions. Um, he says he said John Kim has been mistaken for Sergio several times. Oh my God. <laughs> Which is hilarious because look. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so in case you don't know, or if, if you're one of the people mixing them up, this is John Kim. He's Korean, okay? And this is Sergio. He's from Mexico. So they actually look significantly different. They both have black hair, but and maybe that was the thing. So anyways, and they're about average height. So. We thought that was hilarious. And it's never, it's never Sergio is mistaken for John. It's people go up to John and say, hi, Sergio. So just if you see them, now you know. That's John. He wears glasses. That helps, okay? And that's Sergio. Um, there was a woman who used to work at our church named Renee Timmerman, and people always mistook us for each other, right? Um, there were fewer Asian women at the church then, and so I'm hoping that was the reason. Um, and at least she was kind of Asian-y looking, and I'm kind of Asian-y looking, so that one was closer. But um, we used to joke about, I said, oh, Renee, you should go stand in the lobby one day and just make out with your husband. And then somebody will come and say, I saw Christina making out with some strange man. We thought that was hilarious, but um, it did not happen. But I have uh, frequently, and maybe you have too, someone has mistaken you for somebody else. Uh, recently, somebody sent me a message and said, I think your Facebook account has been hacked because you keep sending me messages that say this, that, and the other. And since I'm never on Facebook, I said, yeah, that's not me. Um, and then when I was in college, someone stole my social security number and was collecting benefits. And I had to go down to the office and say, no, I'm actually like 19 years old and I'm not on disability and that kind of thing. So um, who we are matters, right? Our identity matters. And um, it matters to each of us, obviously, and it matters to God. And in today's passage, we're going to learn about Jesus' identity and how we are defined in God's eyes. So let's look at... This is weird. Oh, okay, there we go. So starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus... What? Yeah, okay, sorry. Now... <laughs> that, what? Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, oh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, well, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Um, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so who is Jesus being mistaken for? He, he says, you know, you guys hear all the talk. Who are you hearing? And so the first one 
he is mistaken for is John the Baptist. We are going to blitz through these because my talk is too long, okay? And the important part is um, you know they're not the same person, hopefully. But if you're confused, then take a picture of this with your camera and, um, and you can study it later. But um, so some of the things in common that they have, right? And this is Herod's guess, right? Herod guessed he's John the Baptist again because Herod had that guilty conscience, if you remember. So um, they were cousins, right? So maybe there was a little family resemblance between the two of them. Um, they both had the same call to repentance and confession. Uh, they both um, said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? And, you know, come on, everybody, it's now, it's now. They both preached like that. And they both um, had run-ins with authority and problems with people in power, and it cost them their lives, both of them. So there are things they had in common. Differences, uh, you know, Jesus had a miraculous birth story. Um, John himself said, I'm not the Messiah, I'm the forerunner. And Jesus confirmed that. He said he was the Elijah who was to come. He was the forerunner, right? And um, John's disciples practiced asceticism, so they were very, um, you know, uh, behave yourself, follow the rules, you know, eat and drink certain things, right? And remember, Jesus got accused of, oh, your disciples, they're, you know, they party, they eat and drink, they hang out with unacceptable people. So they had very different kind of schools of followers. And then, um, obviously, Jesus had the eternal thing going, but um, he's still kind of proving that in the meantime. So that is John. So that was the first guess. Second guess, they said, well, some people say you're Elijah, right? Um, both Jesus and Elijah, they spoke prophetically, right? Meaning they spoke messages from God. Um, they both did signs and wonders. Elijah is like super famous for his amazing signs and wonders, and Jesus did signs and wonders. Um, in Jewish tradition, Elijah was known as someone who kind of would put in appearances to help Jewish people and, and, and help them understand the writings better, right? The, the Torah better. So, um, and Jesus, you know, he also was very helpful to the Jewish community and healing and teaching and helping people understand God's word. Um, you know, Elijah wanted to point people, if you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, he wanted people to turn away from false worship and turn to worshiping the true God. Jesus could get on board with that. And um, he spoke to the humble and he spoke to those in power. Also, Jesus does that. So again, Differences, Elijah was expected to be a forerunner and not the actual Messiah. Jesus said he was the Messiah. And um, Elijah gets taken away without dying, right? He just whoosh up and, and, and that's why they said, oh, he can come again because he didn't die. He just was taken up to heaven and everybody kind of, and you remember that Jesus gets taken up to heaven. So there's this sort of um, not normal death circumstances um, for both of them. So, you know, not a bad guess. And then some people say, oh, he's Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets, right? So again, they both spoke prophetically, messages from God. They both spoke messages of hope in times of oppression or exile. So if you remember, Jeremiah came at a time when the Babylonians came in and wiped everything out, took a bunch of people away, and then Jeremiah has his lamentations about, oh my gosh, look at us, right? Look what happened to us. And Jesus, again, is speaking to people in a time when the Romans have come in and blah, 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 and horrible things, and oh, if only they go away. And so speaking hope into a situation like that. Um, they both encourage submission to the ruling powers, right? Jeremiah says, you know, plant your gardens, get comfy, because this is how it's going to be for a while, and that's okay. 
And, and Jesus, same thing, right? You know, give Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. I'm not here to overturn Caesar. I'm here to talk about your relationship with God. Um, they both foretold the destruction of the temple. Jesus, the second temple, obviously. But destruction of the temple. They both talked about a new covenant that God was going to make with his people. And Jesus, of course, actually established that covenant that Jeremiah was looking forward to. So they both taught about the same thing, and they both were um, persecuted by those in authority. So many similarities. Again, you know, Jesus says, I'm, I'm one greater than the prophets is here, right? I have a lot in common with the prophets, but actually God is doing even more through me. Right? I and the Father are one. Okay, so that was the blitz. Oh, wait. So, you know, they weren't bad guesses. They were not bad guesses. Maybe John the Baptist was a bad guess. But the other two were not bad guesses, right? Um, those were all good guys. They were decent guesses. And Jesus went, goes so far as to say later that, you know, when it comes to normal human beings, nobody was greater than John. John, was, he says that in Luke 7, 28. But he goes on to say in that same passage in Luke that he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest guy on earth, right? So there's a whole sort of shift change, whole, whole paradox change, right? That, that um, yes, you guys are looking for these wonderful human beings, but I'm here to tell you about the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, the, the lowliest little chub who makes it into the kingdom of heaven has done far more than these guys. So, okay, so bring this back to our passage. I'm gonna back up a little to verse 15. Um, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, answered him Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it, or the gates of hell. Right? You may have gates of hell, or gates of Hades. Um, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth and what, uh, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay. Um, we know from our study this time that huge crowds of people have been following Jesus around everywhere, every day, day and night. You know, feed us, teach us, heal us, right? Huge crowds of people. But among this crowd has been this little inner circle of Jesus' special friends, the disciples, and they are the ones who get to see him even when the large crowds are gone. So they get to see, many people have gotten to see the public Jesus, they have seen the public Jesus and the private Jesus. And they've seen, which means they have seen his habits of prayer, of going off by himself and praying. They've seen the consistency of his character. You know, it's not like the crowds go home and you say, oh, thank God, I hate those guys. I'm so glad I got right. They see that, oh, he is the same person whether the crowds are there or the crowds are not there, right? And so Peter speaks for himself and probably some of the others when he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We have seen the real you 24-7, and we believe, right, that you are greater than me. So Peter is saying, I understand you are greater than the greatest man who ever lived, right? Peter is saying, you are more than, say, a John who calls us to repentance and baptism, right? 
Um, you are more than an Elijah. You are more than a helper of the Jews and someone who teaches the scriptures to us. Um, you are more than one of the greatest prophets that Israel has ever seen, um, who, even though you speak in similar circumstances. And a lot of people stop there in that understanding of Jesus, right? He's a prophet. He's a teacher. He's a great man. He's, you know, as great men go, he's right up there with the great men, right? And, but to do so is to only see part of the picture, right? You're missing that piece. But Peter is able to keep going, right? He's able to say, Jesus, you are another whole thing entirely. So I love this mosaic. If you've ever been to Istanbul, um, you can see how beautiful mosaic. Um, so he says, Jesus, you are of the kingdom of heaven, right? You're not just talking about it. You are actually of the kingdom of heaven. Um, you, you are the long-awaited one that the prophets talked about and pointed to. This is what it means when he says, you are the son of God, right? You're the Messiah. You are these things. Um, you are a being in completely different relation to God the Father, right? You're not a creature like the rest of us. You're his son. You're begotten, not created, right? You are unique. So this is what Peter is saying when he says, you know, uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It means all these things. You're, the, you're of the kingdom of heaven. You are the one the prophets have talked about. You are in a completely unique relation to God the Father because you are his son and not just his creation. Um, and what I love about Peter is that when Jesus asks the question, he doesn't say, just give me a second, right? And he doesn't go and powwow with the disciples and, well, I think he's, well, what do you think? Are you sure? You know, none of that. Peter just blurts it out, right? And remember in Matthew 12, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And pouring out of Peter's mouth at this moment is awe and truth and faith. This is why Jesus picked him, right? What comes, you know, when you poke him, what comes out of Peter's mouth? You are the Christ. That's what I, that's what's in my heart that's just waiting to, to flow out, right? And so Jesus recognizes this, and two things happen. Um, first is we learn that recognizing Jesus as more than just a great guy requires a gift of faith, right? Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That is, Peter, you, yes, you have seen something not everybody sees, and that is a gift from God the Father. Revelation is a gift. Um, eyes to recognize and understand a revelation. Revelations are happening all around us all the time, but we're not looking for them, right? We're not seeing them. And so he's saying to see things, this is why we pray, open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes. We're just wandering around blinded half the time. Open our eyes. We want to see how you're at work and where you are at work in the world. Um, okay, so it requires a revelation. And the second thing is that when this moment happens for Peter, he is translated, literally, and he is transformed. Two things happen. So his birth name, Simon, son of Jonah, gives way to a Greek nickname, Petros, right? And Jesus shows his Jewishness by whipping out a pun. Um, the Hebrew scriptures love puns, and Jesus is Jewish and he loves puns. And here it comes, right? He says, um, Simon, you are now Peter. The rock. You are the rock. And on this rock, on this Petra, right, the church will be founded, and the church will never be overcome by anything that hell can throw at it. So there's a lot to think about here. 
Okay? The first thing being that um, recognizing who Jesus really is comes by revelation. And the only way to have something revealed to us is to have open eyes and open ears and an open heart. And this is why the Bible is so insistent on saying, oh, you know, open my eyes, Lord, or their eyes are closed, right? They can't even see. And, you know, we think, well, gosh, if it takes a revelation to be believe in Jesus, then what do I do if I don't get that revelation? We can pray for the revelation, right? We can pray. We do pray. Open my eyes. I want to see you, Lord. Open my eyes. God does not dislike prayers like that, right? If you are a blind little mole who says, Lord, I want to see, I want to see you, that is the prayer God likes. He will be happy to open our eyes. So, um, yes, we can say, have you ever noticed when you learn like a new word or a new concept, suddenly you see and you hear it everywhere, right? Like you, you learn a new vocabulary word and suddenly, oh, everybody's using that vocabulary word. Or your kids tell you about some certain trend that you're oblivious to because you're middle-aged, right? And then suddenly you see it everywhere. This is what it can be like, right? If we pray, God, open my eyes to you, you at work in the world, your presence in the world, suddenly we can see, okay? So I hope that's our prayer for all of us today. Um, and the second thing is when we recognize who Jesus really is and respond with faith as Peter did, we begin to be translated and transformed. So we'll see in just a minute that this is not an instantaneous process. Poor Peter, this chapter is famous for, I'm sure, being like a really big high in his life and a really low, low in his life. Um, it's not an instantaneous process, not even for Peter, the foundation of the church. And But it's the process that begins with this moment, right, of turning us into the people we, we were created to be. Peter is not yet a rock, right? He's going to stumble in just a second here. He's going to stumble again very badly when Jesus is arrested. Um, he's going to stumble after the resurrection. He gets in a fight with Paul about how Jewish do you have to be to follow Jesus, right? Stumbling happens. Stumbling is what we do, right? But um, what he knows is he, he's not yet a rock, and yet he is a rock, because that is what Jesus tells him he is. Right? This is our identity. You know, Jesus comes to us and says, you are a child of God. And oh, a lot of the time we don't behave like it, right? We do not behave like children of God. But we're, we are stumbling along, right? Trying to behave more and more like children of God. And knowing at the same time, even at our worst, God says, this is who I say you are. You know, live into it. Become. This is who I say you are. Um, Okay, I love that Peter is the foundation of the church. I love that Jesus picked someone who was impure and impulsive and well-meaning and really flawed. I love that because, you know, imagine if he had founded the church on Paul. Paul is so good at behaving himself. You know, all the time, Paul is such a well-behaved man. You know, he gets a little irritable at times, but he's generally quite well-behaved. And maybe because we're reading it from his point of view, he always seems to be in the right, right? But how much easier to relate to Peter, who is like, okay, Peter is us. Peter is a big, giant mess, but with a good heart on his best days, right? And that's what we can be. Like, we, Lord, we are a big, giant mess, but help us follow you and on our best days become more and more like you. Okay. Um, so thirdly, by extension, 
by extension, the church is founded on the revelation of who Jesus is and on the authority and warts and all nature of the apostles. You know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus founded the church on the rock of Peter, and the church has lived on, right? Um, individual churches, lowercase c, they have come and gone, right? Denominations of churches have come and gone. But nowhere and at no time since its founding has God's work through the capital C, the big church, has, has it not gone on? Has it ever been halted? Somewhere, at times, more places than others, God's work and his spirit are powerfully moving forward, right? When I pray for our church, when I pray for Belprez or other lowercase churches, um, I ask, you know, I say, God, help us continue to be useful to you. Help our little church continue to be part of the church that goes on and on. Because, Lord, I know... Um, it is the, I have seen little churches come and go, but Lord, I pray that our church take our time, talent, and treasure and use us for the capital C church that will never end. Lord, we want to be part of it. We really want to keep going with it. Um, because God will do what God will do, with or without us. And so I really want it to be us, and I want us to be on there. Um, because we know that the big church is unstoppable. Let's look at the, the gates of hell. Um, you may have wondered, these are the wonderful gates of hell by Rodin. If you've ever been down to Stanford, or, um, this is a bronze cast, so you can see versions all around the world, various places. Um, with the little thinker, do I have a little? The little miniature thinker up there. I bet you didn't know he was thinking about hell, but there he is. Um, so what are these gates of hell? Uh, you know, I think we've talked about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and what some of the thoughts were about the afterlife in this time, right? The Sadducees said, that's it, right? You kind of, you're gone, you're done after you die. Pharisees said, oh, there's some kind of afterlife, you know, the, and the Hebrew scriptures seem to talk about Sheol and this place where the spirits go. Um, the Romans, they said, you go to the underworld, like Aeneas did in, in the Aeneid, right? You go to the underworld. And, um, and good and bad are all mixed up in there together, right? But Jesus' own teaching seems to point to um, there is some kind of division that takes place in the afterlife. And one set of folks keep marching on to God, and one set of folks keep marching away from him, right? So the, ba the gates of hell basically are this barrier, this marker between life and death. And, and Jesus is saying, more specifically, this life that keeps marching on with God and the life that says, you know what, I want no part of you, just leave me alone, right? People who are just, I want to be away. Um, so they are the marker. So that's what he's saying. When the gates of hell will never overcome the church, death, death and all that it involves will never overcome the church. And, you know, there's multiple kinds of death. There's biological death. Um, we all die biologically, but but we can also die before that to God, right? You can die spiritually, um, but you can, yes, I'm sorry, but yes. Um, you can die as a result of unbelief or hardness of heart or sin, right? You can die spiritually to God, and, and it can separate you, right? But Jesus is saying the church is going to be able to withstand forever and ever anything that biological death can throw at it, Anything that unbelief and hardness of heart and sin can throw at it. The church is going to keep going. And it will hold a position, he goes on to say, of unique authority 
over the earth, and over spiritual realms. Um, what does that mean? I've got this picture. If you've been to the Sistine Chapel, and you can tear your eyes away from the ceiling, you know this painting by Perugino is on one of the walls, and it's, it's when, he, when Peter is giving, uh, when Jesus is giving Peter the keys to the kingdom. You can see the big giant key, it's a big key. He gives him, when he's founding the church, he's like, Peter, here's the keys to the kingdom. Peter's like, thank you, Lord. You can see that. And then there's this beautiful perspective in the background. Um, but yeah, the church, Jesus says, is given the authority to determine what is forbidden or bound, right? Or permitted, loosed on earth, right? This is vast authority he is handing over to the church. Vast authority. And I kind of feel like, is this a good idea, Jesus? It has been much abused throughout the ages, right? Um, it's kind of like giving a teenager the keys to the car and the keys to the house and saying, well, we're going to be going on a little trip because <laughs> behave yourself, right? I feel like this is what happens. And do you trust that kid to behave responsibly? I mean, even if the kid behaves responsibly, are his friends going to behave responsibly? What is going to happen in your beautiful house while you're gone and to your beautiful car? My son just hit somebody you know, we have to fix the other car, but I feel like there's no point fixing our cars until all these kids are gone. They just like hit things with it. Oh, they hit the post in the garage. They hit another car. It's like, forget it. We're just going to drive beaters until they're all gone. And, and then we'll, maybe we'll fix the car and have a nice car for two years until the kids take the keys away. So, um, so in any case, um, so on good days, on good days, the church prays and holds councils and helps its flock determine where God is leading, right? Um, determining what what should the people of God be doing and not doing, right? On on bad days, well, you can just look at bad days for the church where they have said, ah, you know, I can give examples. I'm not going to give examples. We don't have time. But you know, um, so it's it's kind of like. Well, I don't want to talk about that either. Okay, so, uh, yeah, bad teenager story. So, Jesus gives the church the keys, and he gives the church authority over God's people, right? And somehow the church has survived even that. And this is a sign of how miraculous it is, and how, uh, how God really has to keep a hand under us, because... Oh my gosh, giving us his precious bride of Christ, right? The church. Here, you take it from here. What a disastrous idea. But um, but it has lived on. And so Jesus makes this immediate this amazing declaration, and immediately it is put to the test. You are the church. You have authority in heaven and on earth, you know, over all the people. And what is the first thing Peter does? He messes up, right? So let's keep reading. Okay, this is starting in verse 21. 21. From that time, after they said, you're the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. <sighs> you know, 
<laughs> what a bummer, right? Tell it, so telling the truth, nothing will ever stop you! Yeah! Yeah! Does not pave the way for good news, right? The first thing Jesus teaches them after this woohoo moment is um, he doesn't start with, we're going to have church picnics, we're going to have baby baptisms, you know, we're going to have vacation Bible adventure, we're going to do meal packing marathons, right? We're going to do women's retreats, we're going to have an orchestra on Christmas Eve, right? He doesn't start with the fun stuff. Jesus starts with, no, baby newborn church, the first thing I'm going to tell you is something really hard that is going to happen. Um, you know, I am your more than a teacher, I am your more than a prophet, I am the son of God, but I am going to be arrested and tortured and disgraced by crucifixion so that I can rise again. And so how does the mouthpiece of the newfound church respond? No, 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 Jesus. That is not the way things are going to go down, right? You're the Lord, for Pete's sake. Stop talking like that. It's depressing, right? He's like, no, 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 right? Remember the keys to the kingdom? You know, woo-hoo, here we go. Don't talk like that, Jesus. We don't want that for you. You're our guy, right? So Peter quickly discovers the one thing that church cannot forbid is teaching the truth about Jesus. The church cannot forbid teaching the truth about Jesus. And the truth is a difficult truth. To redeem us, Jesus has to pay the price of his life. And not a clean little, oh Jesus, you're going to have to die in your sleep kind of thing. He, he has to die a very ugly death, right? There's going to be public shame. There's going to be ridicule. There'll be torture. You'll be vilified by the political and the religious authorities. You will be abandoned, right? There will be physical and emotional suffering, things nobody wants to go through, and nobody wants anyone they love to go through. That's why Peter says this, right? In love and from the best intentions. No, you're the, you're the person, you're the thing I love most on earth. This is not going to happen to you. I love you too much. I don't want this to happen to you, right? So Peter's first going out on a limb after his investiture is to disagree with Jesus about what Jesus must do and his mission, and he gets rebuked in a, in a really vicious way. Um, you remember back in October, we talked about, in Matthew 4, the temptations. And the reason it was a temptation that the devil brought to Jesus is because he knew it would be a difficult thing. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to go through what Jesus went through, right? Of course, the temptation will be, well, Maybe there's another way. Maybe it doesn't have to be this way, right? The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his angels charge of you. And on their hands, they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone, right? You don't have to suffer. You're the son of God, for Pete's sake. Um, your relationship to the Father means you don't have to go through all that. You are exempt. You are exempt. And then again, the devil shows them all the kingdoms of the world, right? And their glory, right? Everything. People loving you. People adoring you. People worshiping you, right? People following you. If only you worship me, the devil, right? And Jesus said then, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And he basically said the same thing to Peter, right? When's the last time someone you love most in the world called you Satan? You know, that's, that's not a good feeling. 
So when Jesus hears Peter, Peter unwittingly echoes what Satan said to him in the wilderness. He rebukes him with the same words, right? Jesus has to fight back that temptation again, and here it is coming to him, not through the devil, but through his best friend, right? How hard is that? He's like, oh my gosh, you know, I, it's bad enough. Don't, you can't speak to me that way, because it's, that's my temptation. Stop. He has to take a firm line. Jesus refuses to let a short-term desire to escape suffering prevent him from his long-term goal of obeying his Father and fulfilling his purpose. Okay, so we say, all right, we understand. Thank God Jesus was courageous and committed, and he fought through the temptation, and he saved us all. Sorry, Peter. That must have been really an embarrassing and very tough day. Um, we know you meant well, and it was necessary, right? We want to we wanna know that, um, that these gates of hell, I love, I love this picture, right? When we stumble as a church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church even when the church goes astray and has to be disciplined, right? Even when the church falls on its face, like Peter does here, the gates of hell, he does not say, oh, never mind. All right, James and John, you are the new rock, right? It's like, no, it's Peter, it's Peter. It's going to go forward through God's power. It's going to go forward. Um, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, even when the church makes mistakes from the best intentions. We're, we've all been in churches. We all know churches make mistakes. And um, I hope we will give all the churches we've been in grace to believe they did it with the best of intentions, right? They made a mistake with the best of intentions. Um, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, even when the church begins to think it defines Jesus instead of Jesus defining it, right? Peter said, the first thing I want to do with my church is say, Jesus, I don't want you to suffer. Jesus, I don't want you to have to go through hard things because I love you, right? But Jesus says, no, I define you. You do not define me, right? Um, so we may bind and loose like, oh, church, it's not a good idea to steal, kill, do things Satan does, right? But God's truth is marching on. And if we get in the way of it, right, if we start saying, oh, church, you shouldn't be doing this, when God actually wants the church to do that, then we may get run over, right? Peter gets run over. We may get run over, but the church goes on. Okay, so then hard news. And then Jesus keeps going with the hard news. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man for what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay. Um, so following Jesus, yeah. This is another hard sell, right? Okay, church, you just fell on your face, and I have more hard words to say to you. Um, you know, if you ever eavesdropped on my prayer life, and thank God nobody does but God, um, you would see how many of my prayers have to do with, Lord, here are some of the plans I have for me and for <laughs> mine, right? And Lord, would you spare me and my loved ones this pain we are going through, right? 
Those, that is, oh my gosh, that would cover like 75% of my prayers. Here's what I hope happens, Lord. I hope it's what you hope happens. And, oh Lord, this horrible thing is happening. Fix it. Make it go away. You know, I, I try to finesse it a little, but that's the gist. And it's not like God doesn't know the gist, right? Um, those prayers certainly outnumber the Lord, your will be done, even if it means this situation is going to continue. This pain continues, even if it means I am not going to get what I want. I may sometimes say that, kind of pro forma, because I know I ought, but I don't mean it, right? Like, I really want what I want, Lord. Um, and on the other hand, on one hand, I just want to reassure you, if, if that covers 75% of your prayers as well, um, it's okay, right? If you punch us, we are going to squeal. It hurts. Right? And the Bible also tells us, cast your cares on him because he cares for you, right? Lord, when we are in pain, when we are freaking out about ourselves or someone we love, we are in pain, and Jesus says, yeah, come and tell me that stuff. Come and tell me that stuff. I already know about it, but come and talk to me about it, right? Um, we are God's children, and children are allowed to make requests, and they are allowed to cry when they are in pain and they are scared, Okay? Great. And yet. And yet. When I was younger, I used to think these verses were horrible. I hated them, right? Nobody likes these verses. I thought they were scary. Who's ever going to want to follow Jesus if it means you never get to do what you want to do? As if I don't spend 90% of my life doing what I want to do, right? Um, I'm pretending I'm not. Um, so, you know, nobody wants to deny themselves and experience suffering and lose their life. And now that I'm older, I have realized some things. Right? You know, I realize the two options are not. Jesus is not saying, one, do whatever you feel like with your life and have a good old time, versus deny yourself and live a life of guaranteed misery. Right? <laughs> that is not what he's saying. On a quick read, that must that might be what you come away with. Like, <gasps> Christianity is about following Jesus and being miserable, and we're supposed to be okay with that, right? Instead of doing whatever we want to do and just being happy, happy, happy the time because haven't you discovered when you do exactly what you want to do you're like totally happy forever and ever yeah it doesn't work and yet we do it all the time um as i get older i realize that's not what he's saying that's not what he's saying what he's saying is do whatever you feel like with your life and you might still end up with nothing right versus give your life to following me and find the true meaning of it Right? What is the true meaning, meaning of life? Live to the full. Reaping the benefits of that into eternity. That is what Jesus is saying. Those are the options before us, right? Live entirely for yourself, and you may find, you, whoa, you get to the finish line, and what was that all about, right? Or follow me, and sometimes it will require you to deny yourself, but you will realize, oh my gosh, my life has been so much fuller. Um, so what are some examples of denying ourselves? Woo, super fast. Um, of course, contemporary Christians, contemporaries of Jesus, they often had to give up that life. That was really denying themselves, right? Um, for most Christians nowadays, that isn't the case. Although I was talking to Jacob, who is the pastor of the Chinese church that meets at Belfast, and did you know his dad, his parents are still in China, and his dad leads house churches, and his dad is constantly being arrested and thrown in jail. So half the time, if you ask Jacob, hey, how can I bring you? Could you pray my dad's been arrested and, you know, that he, this is his dad's life. That's just the way it is, right? 
Um, but for you and me, with our cush little lives over here where nobody uh, throws us in jail for believing in Jesus, denying ourselves might look different, right? It might look like, sorry about the small print, but I have lots of examples. It might look like submitting our choices to the authority of God's word and the church. Remember, whatever you bind on earth, whatever you loose on earth. Even if we don't like that authority, submitting to authority, the authority of God. You know, you might read some things in here and say, well, I didn't like that, right? Denying ourselves means sometimes having to obey, even if we think, I don't like that. And I don't like that. Um, you know, what the Bible might say about sex, what the Bible might say about money, what the Bible might say about how we treat other people, what the Bible might say about workaholism or greed, right? We might not like what the Bible says. Well, I want to make money. Well, I want to have sex with that person. Well, I want to, you know, do this, that, and the other. We may not like it, okay? So that could be an example. Um, another example of self-denial, being the first to reach out and try to reconcile, even if the other person was more to blame, right? <laughs> that is denying yourself, right? You want to sit around all day and wait for that person whose fault it was to come and try to reconcile. You, it may never happen. Right? But if you deny yourself, I'm going to deny my pride and my sense of, well, what about in my justice, right? And I'm going to try to reconcile because I know that's what Jesus wants. That is denying yourself, okay? Same line, being, being the first to try to forgive. Even if you have good reason to be angry, right? To try, Lord, help me. What I want is to be angry. What I want is to get back at that person or that situation. Help me try to forgive. Help me deny myself and try to forgive, right? Um, it might mean doing the right thing, even if it's the harder thing, right? The easier thing is so much easier, and the hard thing is so much harder. So, but oftentimes, the right thing might be the harder thing to do. Can we deny ourselves and our desire to do the easier thing? to do the right thing. Um, it might look like being known for following Jesus, even if it loses us other people's admiration and respect. And in many situations, it will, right? In a church situation, it's like, oh, you believe in Jesus, hooray! But you, know, don't, you don't have to go very far before people think you're an idiot. So it might mean losing respect and being okay with, well, that's who I am, right? And, you know, deal with it. Um, so if you put it that way, that way, Yuck, right? You're still thinking, yuck. <laughs> um, I don't want to deny myself, but Jesus says, this is how you're going to find yourself. What does he mean by that? And that's what I want to look at. What does it mean when we deny ourselves? How are we going to find ourselves? I think the first way is look at that first one. When we submit to the laws of God and the authority of the church, it can mean freedom, right? Freedom from slavery to those things that will enslave us, to sex, to food, to workaholism, to money. God wants to give us freedom. And he gives us that freedom by setting boundaries. And we think, oh, we go and we bang against the walls. And then you don't realize what slavery can look like unless you've been a slave to some of these things, right? And you think, that's why that boundary was there, right? God wasn't trying to crumple me and make me miserable. He was trying to protect me. He was trying to keep me free, okay? Second thing, being the first to reach out means whole relationships. This is a wonderful thing, having a whole relationship. Freedom from guilt, freedom from regret, right? 
you know, even if the person will not reconcile with you. It's like, Lord, I gave it my best effort, and I told them the door's open, always, right? I, I don't regret, I wish I had just told that, I wish I told them I loved them, I wish that I told them that, you know, this, that, and the other. Freedom from those things when we deny ourselves. Being the first to forgive is freedom from bitterness. People who have forgiven, who have gone through the very hard work of forgiveness, are free from bitterness. You do not have to be bitter because you've let it go. This is what God wants to give us. He wants us to be people who are not bitter because we've, we've been able to work through it. I'm doing the right thing. Honorable character. God wants to give us an honorable character. The reason they can say to Jesus, you are the son of God, is because they saw his honorable character at all times, right? It wasn't, oh, yeah, everyone looked up to my dad, but it only was a different thing, right? We want to be, yeah. That's why I try to tell you what terrible person I am, so that when my kids come and say, she's frightened me, she had a horrible temper, you'll be like, yeah, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> honorable character. We want to be the same person to everybody. Um, okay. Being known for following Christ. Self-respect, right? I'm not trying to hide who I am. And Jesus says, if you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you before my Father, right? We're, we're together, right? You acknowledge me and I acknowledge you. We want those things. So that is what God wants to give. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you deny yourself, it's because I want to give you these things. I want to give you more. Right? More than you're thinking of. You've got to think bigger than what you want to do, what you feel like doing, what seems easy. Right? I want to give you more than that. Okay. All right. You know what? Pick up your cross. <laughs> Another horrible, terrible thing that I just want to say. I used to think I don't want to pick up my cross. It's terrifying. Right? Um. But that cross, I think, as we get older, you hear this a lot from me. We've had a tough couple years, right? is there is no avoiding your cross. You gotta pick up that cross, right? Um, but what we find is, when we have gone through this, right, it's a progression. When we have gone through this self-denial, when we have experienced the more that God wants to give us, when we come to the time when we pick up our cross, we find that we're not carrying it alone, right? And that it is lighter. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is lighter because we have Jesus beside us. Okay, I'm just going to stop right there because we're out of time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our eyes. We want to see you, or we want to want to see you, Lord. Um, 